It is good to be with you this morning. Um, I first found out about Christ Community Church um, from Brian and Mandy Stock. Um, I pastored a small church in South Carolina uh, for a couple of years, and they came by the church and presented uh, their missions uh, efforts to us, and, and we got to know them. We had them over to our house for lunch after church, and um, they spoke warmly of their home church, and so it's good to be with you here this morning. Um, we're going to take a look at Psalm 2 this morning. So it is printed in your bulletin, or you can turn there in the scriptures if you have a copy with you. Psalm 2. Let's hear God's holy word together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray together. Father God, You are the Lord Almighty. And we come before you this morning as a people who need to hear from you. We do not need to hear a clever message put together by a man. We need to hear your voice, O God, speaking to us through your word. And so we pray that you would come and speak by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would write your word upon our hearts. We pray that you would fill us and equip us to serve you well in this world. We pray that you would unite us closer to Christ and make us more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do we make sense of this world we live in? If you watch the news at all, if you pay attention to global events, if you understand what's happening with the church and God's people around the world, it can be confusing and even disorienting. We believe that God is Lord of all. We heard in the call to worship this morning, all the earth bows down and sings praise to your name. We sang together that, that God is the Lord. We heard that 
His reign is absolute because He is self-sufficient from Colossians 1, that in Him all things hold together. And yet, you can look at the news or you can look at stories of what's going on with the church around the world and it can be confusing. Just a couple weeks ago at Whitfield Academy where I serve, we had two ladies from Iran come and speak in our chapel. Their names are Mariam and Marzia, and they've written a book called Captive in Iran because several, a few years ago they were held prisoner in a terrible Iranian prison for almost a year. Their crime was sharing the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ on the streets of Tehran. They were handing out New Testaments. They were handing out uh, evangelistic tracts. They were part of a group of people that were starting house churches. And for this criminal activity, they were arrested. They were put into a terrible prison where they had to sleep on concrete floors with urine-soaked blankets. And they figured that they were urine-soaked because there was no bathroom facility at all in the place where they were kept. And they were there for almost a year. And they were threatened with death again and again. But through the prayers of God's people and through the work of advocacy groups, they were released, and they now live in the Atlanta area. Several years ago, I read a story about a teenage girl in Pakistan who got the message of the good news of Jesus Christ through some missionaries who were working in Pakistan, and she came to faith in Christ, and she kept her faith secret for a while, but her family noticed a change in her demeanor, in her countenance, uh, in her participation at mosque, and so her father asked her, point blank, what's, what's going on with you? And she figured this was her opportunity to share the gospel with her dad, and so she very excitedly told him how she had become a believer in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world, and how her sins had been forgiven. Her father responded to this good news by beating her and locking her in her bedroom. She was kept locked in her bedroom for months, and her father would regularly come in and beat her and try to get her to come back to Islam. After some period of months when her, she would not come back to Islam, she would not deny Jesus, he did the honorable thing that Sharia law requires of a good Muslim father of a girl who has converted to another religion. He took her to go and do an honor killing, to kill his own daughter. He put her in the trunk of his car. He drove through the streets of their city. He was looking for a place to carry out the honor killing. By the grace of God, he couldn't go through with it. So he stopped in an alleyway, opened the trunk of his car, took his daughter out, and said, leave, I never want to see you again, and drove off. Thankfully, she was able to make her way to Christian uh, aid workers who were working in the country who smuggled her to the United States and she's gone to Bible school. What does she want to do? She wants to take the gospel back to Pakistan. So we read stories like this and we think, is God really ruling over the world? 
because it doesn't seem that way, in a sense. I mean, terrible regimes like in Iran and Pakistan can oppress and persecute God's people. The Gospel can be outlawed and banned and punished. Is God really reigning? Well, in Psalm 2, I think we get a lot of help to understand how this world works. Because Psalm 2 does not deny, it affirms two things to be true about the world we live in. One is that the kings and rulers and people of this world, by nature, do not like God, do not want to submit to God's rule, do not wish to give glory to God, but wish to be free from God's control. And then it turns right around and very clearly affirms that they will not get their wish because God is absolutely in control and His King will reign forever over all of the nations. So let's take a look at this psalm part by part. We're going to first take a look at what the text says and then we're going to dig deeper into some truths that we can get from this text and then we'll consider what God is saying to each one of us this morning. Psalm 2 can be divided into four sections or four stanzas. If you're using the copy of the scriptures that's printed in your bulletin, it may be helpful for you to make little marks. After verse 3 and before verse 4 is one uh, division. So the first stanza is this first three verses. And in each of these four stanzas, we are introduced to four different speakers, four different um, speakers who have a message. And so in the first stanza, verses 1 to 3, we're introduced to the nations, the peoples of the earth, the kings of the earth, the rulers. So it's all the people of the world and those who rule over them. That's who we're introduced to. And they have a message. Their message is one of rebellion. We are told that they are plotting, that they are taking counsel together. What are they scheming in their plotting together? Well, we are told by what they say about God, Yahweh, the Lord, and about His anointed, which is the Hebrew word for Messiah. So it's a psalm about Jesus. And against the Lord God Almighty and against His anointed Messiah, the nations and their rulers are saying this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Another translation reads, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. The world's perception, natural human beings' perception of God and of His sovereignty is that it is imprisoning, that it is enslaving, that it is limiting, that it is denying, and it must be broken. It must be cast off. God must not be allowed to rule over us because we want to have our own way. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Well, what does God think about this plotting, this scheming, this rebellion? In the second stanza, we see God speak. He has introduced to us as he who sits in the heavens. 
And the first thing we see God doing in response to this worldwide mutinous scheme is laughing. He just, you know, all the peoples of the world, all the kings, all the rulers have all taken counsel together. They're all of one heart and one accord. They don't want God to rule over them. And God does not respond with fear. God does not respond by being terrified or shaken up or disturbed. He laughs at their foolishness. And then he speaks. And what he says is not a wish of what he would like to have happen. You see, when the nation spoke, what they said was a wish of what they would like to have happen. Let us break their cords. Let us throw off their bonds. But when God speaks, God does not need to speak about what he wishes would happen. God is able to speak about what he has done. And this is what he says. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Nations of the world can think what they want to think. The rulers of the world can think what they want to think. We can think what we want to think. God has declared authoritatively, definitively, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. King Jesus reigns regardless of who acknowledges or doesn't acknowledge it. It is a definitive, authoritative, finished work. And so, that's the second stanza. God speaks, verses 4 to 6. And then we go to the third stanza, verses 7 to 9. And we see the Messiah, the anointed king, who speaks. And so the I in verse 7, is the Messiah, is King Jesus. And this is what King Jesus says. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Jesus speaks, and what Jesus says tells us what it means for God to have said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Does that mean that Jesus is going to be king, but the nations are going to be unaffected by it? We can just keep going about our merry way and we don't ever have to be held accountable to this king? Well, that's not true. Because Jesus makes it clear that when God said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, I have set you as my king, that means that Jesus gets the nations as his heritage. Jesus gets the ends of the earth as his possession. Now you might think that it's like in some movie, some Hollywood movie, that once Jesus becomes king, he has to set out to conquer and that it would be a difficult struggle for him to sort of establish his kingship. You know, um, like in Prince Caspian or something like that where, you know, the rightful king 
is there, but he really has to overcome all odds, and it's a difficult struggle, and he has to fight against an overwhelming force. But that is not the picture that we're given. We're given an illustration which is actually very striking and one that we need to pay attention to. It is most definitely not politically correct, but it is powerful, and we can't miss it. We're given a picture of a clay pot. It's a potter's vessel. That represents the strength of the nations in their rebellion against King Jesus. And then King Jesus is given an iron rod. Now, if I had up here in front of you on a table a clay pot and an iron rod, and I went to strike the clay pot with the iron rod, you would not all of a sudden hold your breath and wonder what was going to happen. Who's going to win? I wonder if the clay pot might cause the iron bar to break and bend. (laughs) It's a foregone conclusion. The reign of King Jesus cannot be challenged by the nations. They do not have strength. They do not have power. That's why God could laugh. They may seem terrifying, but King Jesus is not terrified. And then we come to the final stanza, verses 10 to 12, which concludes the psalm with the psalmist speaking to the kings and rulers and peoples of the world. And this is what the psalmist says. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The psalmist speaks a word of invitation to the nations. The kings are in their rebellion, and God wants the kings of the earth, to know two things. One is that their rebellion is absolutely pointless and fruitless. They cannot win. They will not win. But it doesn't end there. The second part is, if you will quit rebelling, and if you will instead worship God and give homage to God's king, you, even in your raging and rebelling, you can be blessed. You can rejoice and you can be blessed. And so the psalm, which is so full of conflict and anger and raging at the beginning, ends with a statement of blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. All. Even the worst rebelling king, even the hardest obstinate rebel will be blessed if they turn and find refuge in Christ. So that's what the psalm says. What are the truths that we can learn? Well, we've already seen most of them, and I want to highlight just a few. The first great truth that we can get from this text is that the kingship of Jesus is absolute and unrivaled. If you walk away with nothing else, walk away with that. Because 
dictators and potentates and, and would-be rulers of the world like to display their might. You ever notice how, like, everybody who kind of sets themselves up as a dictator over a country, what do they like to do? They like to put on a military uniform and they like to parade their army in front of themselves so that they can feel strong and mighty, you know? I mean, it's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years, whether it's Napoleon or Hitler or Mussolini or any one of the crackpots who's ruling some part of the world today. They want to flex their muscles and show that they are big bad men. But King Jesus doesn't need to do that. You know when you meet someone who is actually strong and secure in who they are and, and confident in their identity? They're usually very humble and gentle. King Jesus, his reign is so absolute that he could submit himself to utter humiliation. He could submit himself to isolation, to pain, to humiliation on the cross. Because he knew he could cry out to his God, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he knew he would be heard and he knew that he would be raised from the dead, and he knew that he would be installed as king forever. And that's why when the gospel goes out to the world today, the gospel does not rightly go out to the world reinforced by a gun. Christ's kingdom is not a militaristic empire that seeks to squash people with outward might. Rather, through the foolishness of the preaching of the Word and the worship of God's people, through the humility of the testimony of ordinary men and women of God, Christ's kingdom penetrates the darkness, redeems lost sinners, overthrows Satan's dark strongholds, and spreads across the face of the earth. King Jesus is a secure king. And because of that, he is a humble king. He is a servant king. But make no mistake, he is king and king forever. One of the best scenes I love to go to to see this is in Revelation. If you have a Bible uh, and want to turn to it, it's in Revelation chapter 5. By the way, just as an aside, um, I love the book of Revelation. And I know that lots of people are scared of it. It's that frightening book at the end of the Bible with all those weird things happening. If that's you, and you kind of want to read Revelation, but you're not quite sure you can handle it, let me just make a quick suggestion to you. Read the first five chapters, and then skip to the end and read the last three chapters. You'll get the basic story of what's going on, and the ones in the middle that have all the trumpets and bowls and dragons will be set in their context if you begin by doing that. The message of Revelation is a very simple one. King Jesus rules. And though the world is full of darkness and turmoil and conflict and evil, King Jesus wins. Always. 
Revelation chapter 5 gives us a great picture of a worship scene in heaven. And this is, uh, this is how it crescendos. Um, in verse, we'll start in verse 6 of chapter 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now there is a king who is confident and humble. King Jesus looks, even in glory, as a lamb that has been slain. Verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, or so be it. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Did you catch verse 13? Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth in case we think that's not all-encompassing, and in the sea, and all that is in them. There is a day coming, and Philippians 2 talks about it in terms of every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a day coming when every single living creature, spiritual, earthly, will all bow down before King Jesus because he is the king. King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is nothing. There is no turmoil in this world. There is no ruler of men. There is no spirit of rebellion. There is no piece of technology. There is no international conference. There is no advancement in philosophy. There is no website, no amount of political correctness. There is nothing that will ever move King Jesus from his throne or even cause him to so much as blink in his absolute unrivaled rule over the nations. That is truth number one. Truth number two, however, which is also clear in Psalm 2, is that people in their fallen nature hate God and resent his rule over their lives. And let me just get real for a minute. We're talking about you and me. 
You see, we start off by talking about all the dictators in other countries and the ruler of Iran and the ruler of Pakistan and the, the dictators of North Korea who like their army marching before them. But the Bible doesn't just talk about the rebellion of the Hitlers and the Mussolinis and the Kim family. The Bible talks about you and me. You know, sometimes in Scripture, God really, really wants us to get something. And so it'll be repeated several times throughout Scripture. It's an interesting study to do. Anything that's repeated three times throughout Scripture, I think is something that we really need to pay attention to. One of the things in the Bible that's repeated three times is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, this is another thing that's repeated three times in the Bible. I'm going to share it with you right now. It's in Psalm 14. But then it's also in Psalm 53, and then it shows up again in Romans 3. So if we, if we think it's not important, it's a long, several verses, and God's repeated it. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3, and this is what God says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Now, at this point in time, we might be able to say, yeah, those people out there, they are just really messed up. Those fools. But then God says this. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And in case we missed it, he ends with this. There is none who does good, not even one. Oh, wait a minute. You mean this sermon about the rebellion of the nations is about me? Yeah. Even if you belong to Jesus Christ by God's grace, even if your rebellion has been subjugated by God's grace, and you have found that place of refuge in Christ, there is still that part of you that likes to shake its fist at God and say, I will not submit to your rule over me. I will have my own way. And it's foolish. And that's why God calls us fools. We say in our hearts, there is no God. Every time we choose to rebel against him, we think, I'm going to get away with this. No one will ever find out. It won't cost me very much. It's no big deal. Everybody does it. And what we're really saying in our heart of hearts is, there is no God. But the third truth, <laughs> the glorious truth where this psalm ends, is that everyone everywhere is called to repent and seek refuge in Jesus. You see, the absolute nature of Christ's reign over us and the complete rebellion of our human nature against him come together in this beautiful warning invitation at the end of Psalm 2. 
we are told in our rebellion that we can come and kiss the sun. You know, most, most rulers of the world, if you rebel against their, their reign, if you, if you plot and scheme the overthrow of the United States government, you will not be invited to the White House to hug President Obama and have a seat at his dinner table. I guarantee you that if you want to go down that road, that is not where that's going to lead. But God says this, you may hate me, you may shake your fist at me, you may want to be free of me, but I gave my son for you. He became king over the nations by submitting to death for you. And if you will come and embrace him, I will make you my child and I will bless you forever and ever and I will give you a place in my family and I will give you a seat at my table because not only is King Jesus the one who reigns forever, but he is the one who has fulfilled all righteousness for us. He is the one who has taken our sins upon himself on the cross. He is the one who has risen again to conquer death. He is the one who calls you even now out of your rebellion. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, he calls you out of your rebellion into his arms where you can find forgiveness and healing and peace and life and blessing. No other king does that. No other king does that but King Jesus. So our application is very simple. How will you respond to his invitation? If you're here this morning and the center of who you are, you know is in rebellion against King Jesus, you may be outwardly playing the game of calling yourself a Christian. You may be coming to church and worshiping God and saying the right things, but you know at the center of who you are, you're shoving God out of your life and you don't want Him to rule over you. then you need to come to Jesus Christ. Kiss the Son. And it does come with a warning, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So the day will come when your rebellion will end and you will kneel before King Jesus and you will say, yes, you are the Lord. You can do that by faith now and receive a blessing or you can do it by sight then and perish in the way. If God is calling you by His Spirit this morning, do not resist His call. Come to Jesus. Look to Him and find in Him a refuge, a shelter. Find in Him the peace that your heart really longs for and that the world promises but can never give. If you are a believer this morning, if you know at the heart of who you are that Jesus is your king, that you are thankful for the salvation that you have in him, is there a part of your life 
where you're still shaking your fist? Is there a corner, a closet, where you're saying, not here, not this, stay out. You need to come to Jesus too. I think there's another truth for us as believers as we come to Jesus that if we really understand who Jesus is, two things about our lives ought to be transformed from what they would naturally be. And this is our our closing point here. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and and you're coming to him and you're saying, yes, I, I love you and I thank you for your forgiveness and your grace and I want to be completely yours, I don't want to be holding back. Let me suggest that there are two ways that that attitude should transform your life. One is in your worship, and two is in your witness. Worship for a truly redeemed child of God who is in loving and joyful surrender to King Jesus should never be boring or routine or superficial or trite It should come from the depth of who we are. And it should be a living sacrifice of offering unto our king with all that we can give him. And I'll just say, it doesn't really matter if it's more traditional worship or more contemporary worship or a big band or a small band. All those kinds of issues are just so incredibly pointless. (laughs) It's about who we are before our king and we should worship him with reverence and awe and gratefulness and passion never trite never boring never routine and the second thing is our witness christian hear what god says about you in second corinthians 5:20 therefore We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Not only does this king take rebels and say, just come and embrace me, and I will forgive you, and I will give you a seat at my table, and I will give you a place in my family forever. But he also says, I will send you out as my ambassador. And I will reconcile more people to me through you. And we are tempted to think about that as a duty or an obligation that I guess we kind of sort of have to do. Really? Because that doesn't sound like a duty or an obligation that I guess we sort of have to do. It sounds to me like an awesome privilege that the God of the universe would not only bring you to himself, but then would want to use you to bring others to himself. His love is not only for you, but wants to work through you for others. That's a privilege. 
When someone gets appointed to a role of ambassador by the United States government, they don't respond with, well, I guess it's a duty and obligation I have to do. I'll figure out how to do it. I mean, these are things that people want and that when they're given, they feel like, wow, my government trusts me to represent them to these people over here and to speak on their behalf. What a privilege. And we have the king of the universe, not the White House. We have God Almighty who has said to us, you are my ambassador. Go speak for me to that coworker, to that family member. Let's do so with boldness, with compassion, with clarity. If we don't know how, let's figure out how. But let's not ever think of it as, oh, I guess I should get around to doing that. It's something I should do. But it's something I get to do. In all the Christian life, one of the things that God has been teaching me over the last several years is a very simple truth. In all of the Christian life, there is a tremendous, life-changing difference between whether we view things as things we've got to do or things we get to do. Just changing that O to an E happens when you understand grace. It's a gift. Worship is something you get to do every Lord's Day morning with God's people and every day on your own. Witnessing is something you get to do as an ambassador of the King of the universe. Let's joyfully, let's confidently embrace who we are in Christ and serve him with all of our hearts. He's the king. He's without rival. He's without equal. And he is our servant savior and the captain of our salvation. Let's worship him and serve him and come to him and worship him and serve him and come to him with all of our lives. Let's pray.